Welcome to Victory Fellowship's online podcast library. We hope that you enjoy this message today. Amen. You know, I feel like the, sometimes preaching is it's so strange sometimes. And you can have things, because what you're trying to do is you're trying to place spiritual reality. You're trying to, to c- come up with words that will describe sometimes the undescribable. It's like an artist trying to paint a picture of Christ or trying to paint a picture of, of, of heaven. You know, how it's, you, can do some, you can do a great thing, but it's impossible to really do it justice. And, and you know, that, a lot of times that's where the prayer language comes into, into play when we, when we pray. There's, just, there's certain things that just can't be said. There's things in our heart. We're spiritual creatures. We're not just animals, natural creatures. There's things in our heart that can only be expressed supernaturally. And there's things in my heart this morning. I, you know, I just need God's help to communicate these things to you because there's, I have a sense of something. I mean, I'm not just preaching to you right now. I'm not just preaching evangelistically right now. I have something in my heart that I want to communicate and um, try to explain it kind of like this. I had... Um, Yesterday morning, you know, Paris and I on Saturdays, we go, normally go for a bike ride. And yesterday morning when we, get, we got ready to go, there was storm clouds gathering over, you know, out, over the, out in the, uh, the lake. And so, we, you know, we, got, we went up early and went. And um, in, about halfway through our ride, you know, we could see the lightning and the storm coming. But um, there was a distinct moment when the wind changed. I mean, there's a distinct moment. It wasn't raining yet. It was another 30 minutes or 45 minutes or even an hour before the rain came. But there was a distinct wind shift that took place. And the atmosphere changed. The temperature changed pretty drastically. The wind direction changed. The, the, uh, the humidity changed. You could feel the difference immediately. And for the, until the rain came, it, the wind was blowing. And, uh, you know, I don't understand scientifically, you know, I'm not, a, I'm not a, 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 a weatherman, but a meteorologist or whatever you call it, but I know what I felt that day. And I felt the clear change of the spiritual climate that was taking place. There are distinct spiritual seasons, distinct clear spiritual seasons. Some, mo- most people and even most Christians are totally clueless to the changing of the seasons because of being too carnal to perceive the changes. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to say it as nicely as I possibly can, but there, is, there, has, there, has, there has been... There, I, was, I was standing on this platform two weeks ago when I was... The only way I could describe it was the way I just described the bicycle ride yesterday morning. There was a distinct moment in the service where I felt the atmosphere in the room change, and it was, as, it was in my spirit a distinct changing of things taking place in our church. And from, from that moment, services have been different. There was something different. How can you do Well, how is it? I, can, I don't want to put a label on it. I want to, don't want to describe it. But unusual things. Unusual things have been happening all throughout our body, from healings to deliverances to all sorts of things that have taken place. Now this, so I'm, you know, I, I am under, I'm, I'm on the watch. I'm a spiritual weatherman, a spiritual meteorologist, and I'm discerning the times and the seasons, and I'm anticipating the greatest storm since the days of Pentecost 
before the return of Jesus Christ. I'm not certain that I'm going to live to see it, but I'm going to live to see some, some of the things that will, that will precede it that's going to come. You know, it may, it may start, it might, it might be just happening beginning right now, or we might be seeing the, the, the coming, the, the birth pangs preparing for the great day, but the birth tang, pangs are going to be bigger than anything that we've ever seen in our lifetime or in our generation, bigger than the things that we've read about. Unprecedented acts of God are on the horizon. So this morning, I'm going to focus on the act of God. When God struck the earth in the 1700s and birthed a nation. I want us to go, we're going to, I'm going to take you back, if you'll be patient with me for a few moments this morning, I'm going to take you back for, for a glimpse. We're going to try to get a, a telescope and look back 250, 300 years to the birth of our nation and what took place. And, and, and is there anything in that? Is there anything in God's destiny and God's plan for America? If he is the author and finisher of an individual's faith, is he the author and the finisher of a nation? Is he the one that raises up and tears down? Is he the one that has purposes and plans? Absolutely, yes. And God had a plan and has a plan for this country. It started with impossible circumstances. In 1734, there was no chance, no chance in 1734 for 13 rebellious, unrelated colonies to conquer the most powerful empire on earth, the United Kingdom. Impossible. Impossible. Unthinkable. There was not even any remote chance that it could even begin to happen. But in 1734, events begin to take place that would begin to set in motion events in history that would begin to form one nation under God for God's purposes and God's glory. Just the other day, I met with a missionary a missionary friend of mine, he's been my friend for, for over 30 years. And he's been serving in, in the Middle East, in one of the countries that you're not allowed to live in as a minister and as a Westerner. Not allowed to preach Christ or talk about Christ. But he's lived there for a number of years, undercover, preaching Christ to the people in that region. And we met, he was home for, for a rest. And I talked with him the other day, and, and he was, you know, all, he was all excited about what God's doing here and excited about what God's done there. And, and, but he, there was a sadness, and I started to ask him about it. I started asking him about what was going on and this, this sadness. And, and what, he, what he began to say reluctantly, because this, if you knew this brother, he never says anything bad about any person or any other ministry. He never does, never has. And he started to tell me that there is a, a, a dearth or a lack of young men to pick up the baton and follow in, in the steps of these missionaries around the world, American missionaries. You know, today there's over 600,000 international missionaries on the fields. Over 400,000 of them are Americans. And that is one of the main reasons our nation even exists. It was one of the main reasons our country became a country, to be a light to the nations, to proclaim the gospel amongst every tribe and every tongue, to be a bright and light, shining light. And if that purpose was ever to, to, if we're no longer fulfilling that purpose, our reason to exist ceases. 
Well, here's the danger that we're, that we're having. As we begin to talk, as I begin to pull things out of him, he begin to talk about the things that I already knew, the, the major churches and the major cities around the nation, the guys that are the shakers and movers, the big mega churches in the different cities today. He says there's no missionaries coming out of them because missionaries are birthed from passion. Missionaries are birthed from passion. People that have a, a passion for God and a passion for souls. It doesn't come from lukewarm, mushy preaching. Preaching about living your best life now or having it all now. It comes from a passion for God. A willingness to, to love Christ with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. And if God calls you to do whatever for the glory of his name. Because that's where you'll find your greatest joy and satisfaction in the life. So there needs to be a change. The missionary movement began from the Great Awakening. The missionary movement began today. The modern missionary movement can be traced back. And you go, if you don't think my facts are true, go check it out. The modern missionary movement traces back to a young man who died in Jonathan Edwards' house when he was 29 years old. A young man by the name of David Brainerd who had been expelled from Yale University because of revival. He had been touched by George Whitfield, and there was a fire burning in his heart. He was expelled from the seminary, and he became a missionary to the Indians. And as he was a missionary to the Indians, he contacted tuberculosis and began to die. But he spent his last years journaling about the visitation of God and the revival that had burned in his soul, that had inflamed him in the meetings of George Whitfield, began to light a fire and churches began to be planted amongst the Native Americans in our country. And he wrote about it. It's called The Diary of David Brainerd. It was edited by Jonathan Edwards. It's been in print for over 250 years. And missionary after missionary after missionary answered the call of God after tasting the anointing of God in the words of that dying man that lived to preach Christ amongst the Native Americans. It started from revival. Revival. In 1734, revival began to break out in a church in Northampton in Massachusetts, Jonathan Edwards Church, and began to spread through the Connecticut Valley. Four years after that, in 1738, a young college student fell under the conviction of the Holy Ghost and fell across his bed and was converted and filled with unspeakable joy in his, in his dormitory room in England. His name was George Whitfield. And this young college student began to preach Christ in the cathedrals in London and was kicked out of the cathedrals because of the manifestations that accompanied his preaching. Signs and wonders began to break out. In the churches in London, they booted him out. He began to preach in the open air. Within a matter of three weeks of preaching in the open air, his congregations in the streets were 10, 15, and 20,000 in three weeks because lightning, the lightnings of God was striking. The winds had begun to blow. Something was about to happen that was going to birth one nation under God. And he came in 1740 and began to preach from Georgia to Maine. By horseback, he went from village to village, town to town, and preached, and preached, and preached, and preached. And those 
From 1740 to 1775, 35 years, the evangelism of the Holy Ghost through George Whitfield, the mouthpiece of the Great Awakening, began to shake 13 colonies, and 13 rebellious colonies begin to experience awakening. It's, it's safe to say that almost every person in those colonies, a majority of the people in those colonies, went to the meetings of George Whitfield's. They went from whole towns and there'd be sometimes more people in his meetings than the population of a city or town. When he'd preach, lightning was falling on America. God was awakening our people to revival. And in 30 years, one nation under God, an identity was birthed. A generation experienced a born-again salvation experience by the thousands. A national identity was birthed. They saw themselves as a, as, a, as a purpose that God had his hand upon this nation for a reason. One nation under God. That has been removed from our history books. They're telling lies in our public schools. They're teaching them error. And we're losing the sense of who we are. We're losing the sense of who we are because they've re-edited and rewritten history and written the name of Whitfield out of it. In 1770, the most famous man in the colonies was not George Washington, it was George Whitfield. And many of the founders of the Constitution were converts converted in his meetings. We sang one of the songs of one of his spiritual children here this morning. One of his spiritual children, one of the spiritual children of, of George Whitfield was a man by the name of John Newton. Have you ever heard the song? Amazing grace. That, that's what that revival was all about. The grace of God. Let me read you a couple of stories. Forgotten fathers. You know, this is about... Um, it's a devotion I wrote recently. You have to really stretch the truth to take the Lord out of the history of our nation. Not only were the original settlers looking for a place to practice their faith and establish a city on a hill, the earliest of settlers believed the Bible and to form a culture based on its teachings. And about 150 years from the time of the first permanent settlement in New England, our 13 colonies were in a state of spiritual lethargy. In 1734, the first wind of the Great Awakening began to blow at Jonathan Edwards Church in Northampton. Four years later, George Whitfield came to the colonies to preach Christ. What started in 1734 in one church became a raging fire spread by the likes of George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards. By 1770, when Whitfield went to be with the Lord, revival had affected thousands of colonists and one nation under God was about to be born. Whitfield's life obviously affected the colonies. His death touched at least one lost soul and birthed a new church movement. Check out this quote from Forgot Forgotten Founding Father by Stephen Mansfield. He was buried in New Newburyport in the Presbyterian Church where he had often preached. There was mourning in Massachusetts and around the world. Funeral, funeral orations filled the cathedrals of the English-speaking world. In slave quarters and in Indian huts, at sea and in the squares of a thousand cities and towns, news of his passage filled the air with a weeping, the like of which had not been heard since Whitfield had preached of the good news of God's love. Yet some gave a higher tribute. A sailmaker in Portsmouth named Benjamin Randall heard, had heard Whitfield and hated him. 
At noon on the day of the great preacher's death, the town crier went about Portsmouth shouting, Whitfield is dead! Whitfield is dead! The words thundered into Randall's soul. Falling on his knees, he cried aloud, Whitfield is dead! Whitfield is in heaven, but I'm on the road to hell! Shaken, the young man yielded his heart to God where he knelt. In time, he would preach the gospel himself and launch the free will Baptist movement. But on this day, September 30th, 1770, he was but a first answer to Whitfield's lifelong prayer. I'm sure some of the African-American members of this church have heard of a church denomination called A.M.E. Zion. Anyone ever heard of that before? African Methodist Episcopalian Church. It was founded, the founder of that movement was a convert of George Whitfield's. It was, he would preach, he would hold meetings. You know, it's during the time of slavery, and he would hold meetings in the, to the, with just the slaves and preach Christ, and thousands of them came to Christ. It was an awakening of what became the United States of America. It began that day. Amen. Now here, can you hear, can you feel, can you see, can you hear? We live in another time where our nation, our country is losing its sense of who we are. Even the Christians have no clue of who we are. It's been so watered down. We've been so lied to, so persuaded by those in political power and by those in the seats of education. They've lied to us and twisted the truth. So we've lost our sense of destiny and our sense of history. But we still, God has not forgotten. Our God's purpose has never changed. The gifts and the callings of God are without repentance. And I feel in my soul, I feel in my soul, there's not only going to be a great awakening in the nations, but God is going to awaken the sleeping giant called the United States of America one last time. And I'm not talking about a political awakening. I'm not talking about marching to the ballot boxes. I'm not talking about organizing, organizing political and voting campaigns. I'm not talking about any of that. I'm not against any of that. But that's not the solution to our problem. The solution to our problem is much deeper than that. It's a heart problem. There needs to be a deep move of the Holy Ghost in this generation, not watered down. There needs to be the Pentecostal fires that raged in the souls of Peter, that raged in the soul of Evan Roberts, that raged in the soul of Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield, that raged in the soul of Brother Seymour at the Azusa Street Revival. That fire needs to be rekindled in this young generation. He needs to light us on fire again, and I believe He's begun to do that. I believe we've stepped in. I'm not talking about something out there that I'm hoping for. I'm tasting the edge myself. Hallelujah. Now, for the sake of boring some of you, I'm going I'm to read this story. Every time I've read this story, every time I've read this story, it's just about ruined my, my, my life. This is a story that took place right after the outbreak of the Revolutionary War. And you had these young men that were going to war for the first time. They were farmers. They were blacksmiths. They were 16 and 17 and 18 years old. They were 40 and 50 years old. They were young men and old men joining together. But they had one thing in common now. Many of them, many of them, 
Many of them had been converted, had been born again. They were, they were spiritual people. Their churches had been experiencing the move of God. And they had begun to sense that this was a, a sovereign move of the Holy Ghost, that providence was setting in motion something that would, regardless of how stupid and ridiculous the odds looked of them challenging this nation that held them under tyranny, that there was something that was going to take place, that there would be a breakthrough, there'd be a supernatural breakthrough. And this is the story of one of these regiments. They were marching to go to battle for the first time. These young men going to war for the first time. And they, they marched into the very town where George Whitfield had died. Little to, None of them really knew that. But they marched into the town that Sunday morning. They marched into town and the whole town gathered to, to recognize and honor these young troops as they marched through town, heading to meet the British for the first time. And that Sunday, the officers directed them to go to the Presbyterian church in, in, in this town, Newberry Court, court um, wherever, wherever the name of the town is, I'll find it in a few minutes. But in that town in, in Connecticut where Whitfield was buried, they went there, the thousand of them, they got into the pews and listened to the pastor preach. That's where the story is about. It wasn't until afterward, after the service, that someone realized where they were. This, after all, was not just any Presbyterian church. In fact, this town was not just any town. Something special had happened here just five years ago. It was then that the most famous man in the world, a man whom every colonist knew about and most had seen in person, came to this town and died. And while millions mourned him, the people of Newburyport buried him right here in the basement of the First Presbyterian Church, where, we, where he lay now under the feet of these worshiping warriors. The news rippled throughout the command. Beneath where they were standing was the tomb of the man who had led the great revival from Georgia to New England. Tens of thousands had flocked to hear him as he roared the glories of the risen Christ. They had never been the same, nor had he, he stopped with the subject of salvation. He'd also spoken of God's purposes for the colonies, and had called the American friends to return to the vision of their Puritan fathers. He'd even warned the colonies of the encroaching control of a misguided parliament. Hadn't he also been a friend of Dr. Franklin? Hadn't he converted some of the men who now led the revolution? Surely this man was as much a father of the movement as any Surely a kind providence had brought them to this place, this holy place where now George Whitfield lay beneath their feet. In an instant, they knew what they must do. With the sexton's permission, they went reverently below into the church's vault and found the tomb of the man some called the Apostle of the Age. They stood silently for a moment, encircling the place where he lay. Then gently, some of the officers opened the coffin Five years decay made the body unrecognizable, but they all remembered him. Some had seen him preaching in the open fields, or had heard him in their churches. Others had read his sermons, or given money for the orphanage he founded in Georgia, or, or his school for the African Americans in Philadelphia. Each of them had relatives whose lives were transformed by the preaching of this great man. He had made them one. He had called them together, together as a people, and had turned them to their God. This revolution was as much his as anyone's, and now they were here. They were moved. They were humbled. They wanted this holy moment to last, and if it couldn't, they wanted to take something of it with them. Someone pulled out a knife and gently cut off a piece of the collar or the cuffs that had survived the years. 
Others did as well. The sexton just watched, unable to deny them. The soldiers took the pieces of the preacher's garment and shared them among themselves. They tucked them in their boots, sewed them to their coats, put them in the lining of their hats. But they kept them because they knew that the war they fought grew in large part from the truth that he preached. He was their spiritual father. The man who called them to Christ and to Christ's purposes for their land, it was his vision for freedom for both soul and society that they now fought to defend. So when they marched out of Newburyport that day, they thought about what they carried and how much that godly man had done for them. And when the cold came and the hunger, when their friends died of disease or exploded in battle as though from within, they each remembered their little piece of the preacher's garment and drew from it a, piece, a, a bit of the preacher's courageous heart for God. Thus the fires of revival spread into a blaze of freedom and forged a nation in the process. You know, these young men, they didn't really understand what was going on, but they knew one thing. Something had happened to them under the preaching of the gospel, and their lives could never be the same. That is the only hope for this generation. Who is it going to come from? You know, I am, I'm, I am convinced it's not going to happen from the, from the TV preachers. It's not going to happen from the hucksters that have it, it taken over the pulpits of our nation. It's going to take place from the common man and woman that have tasted the reality of God. And they know there's no other solution. There's no other, there's no other answer to man's problems. We know that our only hope, yes, our only hope is for a fresh wind of the Holy Ghost. An unprecedented move of the Holy Ghost. Because we have a much bigger population base. A much bigger land base that they were dealing with in seven. 1740, we need a visitation that's going to rock our nation from Maine to Hawaii, from Alaska to Miami. We need a move of the Holy Ghost. And where is it going to start? It's going to start in individuals that recognize they need God. I need God. I need Him now. I need Him right now in my life. At the danger of somebody saying, you know, I, we always, I always have my, my fans you might call them critics. And someone's going to leave here today and say, you know, he never read a scripture when he was preaching the word of God. <laughs> I'm glad you thought that because it popped into my head right when you thought it. And I'm going to read you a scripture right now. <laughs> you know, it's funny preaching up here. Sometimes you feel the reflections of everything that's going on in the congregation. It's really weird. But, but that's another story. Of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. It says, of him, of him, of him, you are in Christ Jesus. It's his doing. It's his doing. It's, it's part of his plan. He has a plan for America. He has a plan for Louisiana. He has a plan for New Orleans. He has a plan for Victory Fellowship. And he has a plan for you. 
And he, he has done what he needed to do to, inst- to, to start, to initiate that plan in your heart and in your soul. He had that plan in place before you existed. And he began to work a mighty work. You've heard the sto- my story and Paris's story, how he found us on the lakefront and someone sowed a seed of God's word in our heart. It was the hand of God. It's his doing. It's his doing that I'm in Christ. It's his doing that you're in Christ if you are in Christ. It's his doing. It's of him that you're in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God. He became to us righteousness from God. He's become unto us sanctification, and he's become unto us redemption. That is that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Total dependency on God. That was the message of the Great Awakening. That has to be our message today. That has to be not only our church's message, it has to be your message. You know, I always tell the story about the time that God came down in 1994, and he came down in our church. You know, you can ask people that had been in our church in the early days, the earliest of days. I, I had always prayed before 94, up from 79 up till 94, I'd prayed for revival. I'd asked God for revival. We had morning prayer meetings for years, years. We started morning prayer meetings in 1979, 6 a.m. morning prayer. I was over here hundreds and hundreds of times at 6 o'clock in the morning praying, asking God for revival. Now, the, here's what happened in 1994. I began to recognize that a lot of my prayers that I'd been praying, even though God heard them and all, were really misdirected. Because I was praying for revival. Lord, send revival to New Orleans. Lord, get that mayor. Lord, get the president. Get the governor. Pray. You know, all this stuff, you know. You know, change our church. You know, change this city. Oh, God. You know, but, and I finally found the prayer that birthed revival in my heart and, and birthed revival in our church. It was God, I need you in my life. I'm messed up. Lord, I need revival. I had, to, I had to come to a place of receiving and humbling myself and recognizing that I was the one that needed revival. It wasn't my neighbor, it wasn't my friend, it wasn't the mayor, it wasn't the president, it wasn't the governor, it wasn't the ushers, it wasn't the other, it wasn't the preachers, it was, it was me. I needed, I needed, I needed to be touched. I needed to be changed. I needed a visitation. I needed an impartation from God. And that's how it started. I began to Thanks for listening. Check out our website at victoryfellowship.net for service times and locations.